Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Kyle. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at the church, and uh, it's my privilege always to get to come and be with you and uh, open up the Bible and uh, share with you some thoughts and reflections. Uh, But before we get into that, I just want to ask the quick question of, have you ever had a situation in which you were expecting one thing only to find something else completely different? Maybe you've had one of those experiences where you've gone to a party you thought everyone was supposed to dress up for, and you found out either you're the only one who did, or perhaps the only one who didn't, and either way you felt a little bit foolish. I've been there. Usually I'm the underdressed one at every party. Maybe you've had one of those things where you've sort of had an opportunity to see someone, and you have a set of expectations of what they're going to be like, And then when you go and meet them, your expectations are totally off. Like they are just a totally different human being than the person you went to interact with. For me, one of the most unexpected things came this past fall when I ordered something for our house. In August, we were anticipating uh, some moving around of furniture, and so we decided we needed to buy this new wardrobe to go in the corner of our kitchen. And that's because we, we, we have a lot of craft supplies. My wife works with preschool and elementary age kids. I have a daughter who is now uh, des- dedicated to the cause of wanting to be an engineer and crafting and taking things apart and putting them together is the way that she thinks she's going to accomplish that. So we have sort of craft supplies and right now tools and taking apart electronics all over our kitchen. But in August, we're like, we we need to house something for this. And so we ordered this this huge wardrobe that we were going to stuff all of our supplies into so it could look nice in the corner of the kitchen. And that was in August, expecting sort of a mid-September delivery date. Now, as we all know, delivery dates have been a little bit uh, dodgy as of late, especially if you have ordered anything for your home or for work. You you know that you you just don't know when it's going to get here. And so I was okay when mid-September came and our package hadn't arrived, but I looked and tried to track it and discovered that it was still back in China. But I went, okay, you know, understandable. It's moved from the factory to the port. We're going to get this somewhat soon. Well, our six-week wait for our wardrobe ended up rolling into being over 14 weeks of shipping, but I finally got the shipping notice. It it, it arrived in Richmond, and I was excited. We're going to get our package the next day, and so I came to work and waited, you know, sort of waiting for that notification to pop up that the package has been delivered, and then lo and behold, about four o'clock, get the notification, the package is on our doorstep. Yes. So I raced home, pulled in the driveway, and there was nothing there. Porch pirates, right? Like, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking somebody's come, they've seen the package on the doorstep, and pulled it inside. And so I kind of head in with my head hung down low. I'm a little bit frustrated. But as I'm looking down at the ground, there I see a package. My wardrobe had arrived, just wasn't quite what I expected. So I've brought my wardrobe for you today, and I have it right here. (laughs) Got a picture of it for you. 
the lovely company sent us a necklace that says, good luck. <laughs> this is my great big wardrobe in which I'm going to house all my craft supplies. I mean, this was a letdown. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was so displeased with the fact that this arrived. Fortunately, PayPal's great. They returned our money, but I was just so choked, right? Like I had expected one thing, got all excited, only to be let down with a good luck necklace that on the shipping label cost $1.50 to send. What a bummer. But we've all had different sorts of things, right? Where we've expected one thing only to arrive and find something totally different. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes you get dragged to a movie or something and you got those low expectations and then it ends up being a great film and you just love it and can't help but raise a, or rave about it. There's other times, again, where maybe you meet someone and it's a letdown. Maybe you met your hero in some sort of capacity, and then they end up being kind of a jerk. Unmet expectations, sometimes exceeded, sometimes falling way behind, is sort of the theme of what we're going into as we study this next section of Scripture. We're continuing on as a church in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the, the life, the teachings, the influence of Jesus. And we've come to this part in the Gospel of Matthew where we start to see how people's expectations of Jesus end up being a little bit different than what people were anticipating. We see that Jesus ends up sometimes exceeding expectations, and sometimes people end up saying, this guy far from meets our expectations. He completely blows it. He fails it. We don't want anything to do with this guy. Over the next three chapters, we're going to see all sorts of explosive reactions to the person of Jesus. And today, in the section of scripture we're studying, we're going to see sort of three typified reactions to who Jesus is. If you've got a Bible, join with me in Matthew chapter 11. And we're actually going to look at this, this whole chapter, verses 1 to 30. Uh, I'm not going to go through every single part of it. There's just so much to unpack here. But what I want us to do is, is look at it to see sort of the, the three big ways that we see people respond to Jesus so that we can consider now at the front end of this section that we're going to be studying over the next couple of months where we can see what our reactions are, what our responses are to Jesus, and consider where our heart's at now, so that as we go forward and journey through Matthew here in chapters 11 to 13, to see how our hearts can be changed. And my hope is that by the time we're a few months down the road, a couple more chapters deep in studying the life of Jesus, that our reactions to Jesus will be far healthier and more life-giving than the ones that we're experiencing today. Now, as we come to this part, we have to remember sort of what, what's taken place before this. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we've had Jesus has been born, and we just celebrated that at Christmas time, and then he's grown up. We fast-forwarded sort of 30 years to this place where he goes and he gets baptized by this prophetic voice, this guy named John the Baptist, and then he goes out and he starts 
doing all of this teaching and all of this healing. In Matthew chapter 5 to 7, we looked at the greatest speech ever given, which is the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible set of teaching where Jesus has said all these things about how humanity should live, how we can operate so that we can flourish, what it will look like for God to rule and reign over the world and how things can be and will be one day. And then he's gone from there to start making it happen. He's gone out into all sorts of communities over a several month period of time and he's healed people. He's raised a girl from the dead. He's cast out demons. He's confronted religious leaders. He's challenged people who are from different faith views. He has really come and he's started to create all this commotion. As he brings about God's kingdom, Jesus gives a lot of people things to react about. And we see, really, that there's three main reactions, and that's what we're going to see today. And the three reactions are this. The first is a reaction of ambivalence, meaning that there's just these mixed feelings that people have. They're on one side, then the other. Sometimes people will change in their response to Jesus over the course of a conversation. Sometimes it's over a matter of months. We'll see people sort of react and go from one way to the other, or they're just not sure what they do with this guy because he's just not lining up. Then we go from that to people who just outright cannot stand Jesus. They outright just want to reject him. They're sick of him. There's no way, no how we want to get anywhere close to this guy. We're done. He's on the outside. And then, of course, we have the third group of people who we see who decide to receive Jesus for who he is. Whether or not he's lived up to their expectations, whether or not he's exceeded their expectations, they say, hey, this is the guy we want to be with, and we're going to identify our lives with him. And in these few verses, from verses 1 to 30, we'll actually see all three of those responses. And my hope as we look at these is we can consider, where is my heart right now? How am I responding to Jesus in the moments that are taking place as I've gone through the Christmas season, as I've come into a new year, as I prepare for what is to come? Where's your heart? What's your reaction to Jesus? So let's start right at the beginning in verse 1, and I'm just going to read the first few verses here of, of seeing what happens with one person when they come with sort of an ambivalent heart towards Jesus. So we read this. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So Jesus has just given all this instruction to his followers after he's done all this great teaching and healing, all this kind of stuff. He's sending them out to go and, and, and be on mission for him, to bring his news, to bring his kingdom. And he sends them out, and while they're getting ready and going out, he goes off and he continues to teach and preach. And then we see this when, in verse 2. When John, this is John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the days are, dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
So we see right off the bat that there's this sort of reaction to everything that Jesus is doing that just causes some mixed feelings. And, and I love the fact that, that the way God worked was through this guy, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this figure who God had sent. He's a, a cousin of Jesus who God had sent first to be the one who would sort of make the way for the Messiah. And the Messiah is the chosen one of God, the one who would come and save Israel, the one who would bring good news on behalf of God and start to establish God's kingdom. And so God had sent John the Baptist to come and be the bringer of this good news. And he, we see, as we've studied the scriptures, that, that John the Baptist actually fulfills a whole bunch of prophecies. He's the right guy. He ends up going out into the wilderness and living until the right time in which he's supposed to come because Jesus is ready to come and bring all the good news and start doing all this work. And then John comes out of the wilderness and he baptizes Jesus. And he baptizes Jesus saying, this is the guy. This is the one who has come. He's chosen by God. He's here for you. You need to pay attention and follow him. This is the guy who's done all that and is now sitting there and sending a message to Jesus saying, did I get this wrong? <laughs> now, after I've watched you, you know, I set you up, I platformed you, I made you the popular guy, I pointed everyone towards you, and now you're going to go do all this? Jesus, I just don't know what to do with you. We saw earlier, I think it was in chapter 9 or 10, where we saw John had challenged Jesus. He challenged Jesus because Jesus wasn't living according to the rituals and practices of a typical Jewish leader. He challenged him in the streets and, and, and had him question his behavior. John's come to this place where he has felt so led that when he was in his mother's womb, the Holy Spirit caused him to jump for joy so that his mother would know this is the child who was coming to save all of Israel. He's gone from that to now wondering, is this the right guy or have I had it wrong my entire life? John has these mixed feelings and these are significant. This is a major figure in Jewish culture at the time. He's, John's a predominant leader. People are looking at him and watching him. He's fulfilling the prophecies. He's the one who is to come to tell everyone who God is. And now he's wondering, is this guy really God at all? Can you relate to that? Have you ever, whether you're starting your exploration of the Christian faith and trying to find out who Jesus is, or maybe you're down the road and you've been walking with Jesus a while, come to this place where you say, who are you, God? Have you had any moments over the last couple years when you've scratched your head and wondered, what are you doing? Are you really in control? God, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> Are you even out there? I think a lot of us have come to those in different levels or perhaps di different increments. And the good thing is this points us to know that we're not alone. The question then is what we're going to do from the place we are.
And that leads us sort of into the, the next couple of responses that we see. We see that many people in the, the communities that Jesus has impacted and the conversations that Jesus have had have started in a place of mixed feelings and then had to go one way or the other. And we see this particularly in verses 20 to 24. We read this. Then Jesus began to denounce. So Jesus has just gone from there. And I'm, I'm not going to go into all this. It's great stuff to study. Feel free as you go this week to study this whole chapter in depth. But, but what he's done is he's gone from having John sort of question him to he's questioned John. And then he moves on. And he says, And Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. So Jesus here is saying, here's a whole bunch of people who have now rejected me. And he starts to, to condemn them. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For, in, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus makes it abundantly clear here that there's people who choose to outright reject him. There's people who look at the miracles that he's performed. There's people who have heard the teachings that he, have given, he has given, who have come to a place where whether or not they started with mixed feelings have said, you know what, this guy isn't for me. I don't believe that this guy is really who he says he is, or I don't like who this guy is, and so I want nothing to do with him. And this isn't just a few people. This isn't just a couple people who Jesus sort of rubbed the wrong way because he's a charismatic character. This isn't just a couple people who didn't like the person that Jesus healed. This is vast majorities of people in whole communities. He condemns whole cities because they outright reject him. And, and these aren't cities that were just picked at random. We see here that Jesus talks about being in these cities and performing the most amazing of miracles. Jesus is gone. As I said, he, he's healed loads of people. He's gone and he's healed people with leprosy. He's gone and healed people who are on the brink of death. He actually brought a young girl in the prime of her life back from the dead. He's gone and cast out demons and, and provided freedom for whole communities from uh, oppression that's taking place on the hillside across the lake. Jesus has come and done all of these incredible things and people look at him and go, no. I don't want it. Whatever you got going here, I am not into it. And Jesus says that's a choice. But he also says that's a choice that comes with consequence. Jesus says, if you choose to reject me, it will actually bring death. Notice he says to the people of Capernaum that they will go down to Hades. And what he means by that is that they will experience death and separation from God because they've rejected his presence. Now, for most of us, when we hear this list of cities, we, 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 we don't really think much of it. But if you were to be one of the people who was sitting in Jesus' midst, if he, as he said it, the three cities that he names 
that aren't Jewish cities or good cities are, are cities of sort of uh, somewhat fame. He talks about Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Now, if you were to understand the, the Old Testament and what had happened in Jewish culture, these are cities that are, uh, they're, they're Gentile cities, they're non-Israelite occupied cities, and they're cities which actively chose to rebel against God, and so God condemned them to some level of punishment. He destroyed the entire city of Sodom, and then the cities of Tyre and Sidon, he sent opposing nations into them to capture and occupy everything and to kill everyone who rebelled against them. These are three cities which, to the Jewish mind, the people who were listening to Jesus, would have looked at them and they would have said, those are the worst places. I mean, God dislikes these communities so much that he's going to wipe one off the face of the planet and then he's going to pick on these other two so that they see that he really is God. And Jesus says to the people that are standing before him, it's better to be them than to be you right now in your choosing to reject me. Now I know this stands in contrast to what a lot of us like to think about God. We often choose to focus on the goodness and love of God. And, and, and as we'll see in a few moments when we come in to, to see what Jesus teaches about those receive him, that those are there. But, but Jesus wants to be really real with the people he's with. He wants them to understand that, that everyone has the option here of rejecting and people will choose to do so. But in doing so, because of the way that they've lived their lives, because of their rebellion against God, they will experience a consequence. And it's brought on by themselves. And that's clear. We see in those three cities from the Old Testament, all three of those cities had opportunities to turn to God and they chose not to. And Jesus says, look, all of you people who are sitting here before me, who are wrestling with what it looks like to be me, you think you're God's people. You think you're God's people and you talk it up. I know what it's like to look for God. I know what we're going to find in the Messiah. And so you reject me? Well, this might be the consequence. But what does that mean for us today? This is sort of abstract, a little bit strange. It goes a little bit outside of, of what we see. But I want to challenge us with what one New Testament scholar explains might be the implications of this text for us today. A guy named Dale Brunner writes this. He says, Capernaum stands for all self-conscious Christianity. For all Christianity smug in its possession of Jesus. In its being the center of Jesus' work. Jesus is not always impressed. It is going to be better in Judgment Day for the notorious pagans than for the self-satisfied saints. The sum of the matter is this. Christians should take Jesus seriously. Because when they do, they escape judgment. When they do not, they invite it. We aren't the Israelite people who are standing in front of Jesus wrestling with whether or not we would take him seriously, but we are people who have an opportunity to come into relationship with the living God and we have to choose what we're going to do with him. And this isn't just whether or not we receive Jesus for salvation. This is whether or not we receive Jesus for the whole of our life. 
There's a lot of people who live their lives as self-proclaimed Christians, and we say, hey, Jesus has saved me. Jesus has come into my life, and then we ignore and reject every other part of what Jesus does that doesn't fit with how we want to see him or how we want to live with him. And Jesus' response to those who would be the self-proclaimed people of God who want to do that is he would say, it's better to have never known me at all than to make that decision. This is a text that we have to take incredibly seriously. We often blow by the teachings of Jesus without grabbing onto the gravity of what it means to actually follow him. When Jesus invites us to give our lives to him, he doesn't say just give it to me for a moment and then go do whatever you want that aligns with however you want to see the world and however you want to see me. He says, no, I want you to look at me and accept all of me and allow that to be applied to every part of your lives. Don't be like the people of Capernaum who got part of who God is and then went and rejected the parts they did not like. For it would be better to be one of those other cities than to live that way. As we come into this time of year, it's a time where a lot of people reflect. And whether you're a resolution person or not, we have this opportunity to consider sort of what's gone on in the year before behind us and what's coming forward in the year ahead of us. And one of the things that I would love us to take and wrestle with as individuals and as a church is how seriously are we going to take Jesus in the coming year? Jesus urges us, don't be ambivalent. (laughs) Don't reject me, but receive all of me. And that's what we see next, is that's the third sort of response that Jesus teaches and reveals to us about how we can react with God or respond to God. And we see this in verses 25 to 30. So Jesus has just said, woe to these unrepentant towns. And then it says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now again, there's, there's so much to unpack there, and I'd encourage you, you know, if you're not sure what to, to study, if you're not sure where you can go to, to grow and learn more about God, maybe this week, just, just camp out on those six verses. There's a lot in here. It talks about our adoption to, into the family of God. It talks about the, the mysterious interconnectivity of the Trinity. It talks about a whole bunch of things. But, but what I want us to think about for just this moment is our response to those things. Our response to who God is and the fact that God reveals himself to us. How might we respond? What people receive him and what people don't. 
Again, right off the top, it says that there, there are those who are wise and learned. These are the people who, who think they're the people of God, and they do not see Jesus revealed for who he is. But the people who receive Jesus are like little children. This has a lot to do for us to consider how we might respond to God in this coming year. We're supposed to come to God like little children. Now, for a lot of us in our culture, as self-respecting adults, we would never want to be called a little child. If you want to insult someone, it's a great insult to call them a petulant little child. Right? In our culture, we, we, we view kids and we downplay them, and that was the same thing in Jesus' day. Actually, even more so, they looked at kids and they said, they don't understand, they're ignorant, they're pathetic, keep them out of the way. But in this case, I think what Jesus is actually trying to get to is a wonderful picture of who we should be and how childhood can actually bring about something great in our faith. Childhood is a wonderful gift because it reveals to us how we can be amazed and how we can frame our expectations. This week, there was this funny thing that happened on our street and that uh, a whole bunch of uh, kids were playing in our front yard. Our, our front yard has become sort of this place where all the girls in the, on our street just come and hang out and they come and play and it's this awesome thing. There's like seven or eight girls and they all come play on the front lawn. And, and on Friday, uh, they were all playing and it was garbage day and the, the garbage truck started to come up the street. Now, normally the kids would not care at all about the garbage truck, right? Like, it just comes every week. They're at that age. They're no longer amazed. The dream isn't to become a garbage person. But uh, they, they once were. But now they're kind of at this place where, where it's not that impressive. But all week long, the kids have been sledding down our hill. We live on this really steep uh, street, and there's a big snowbank at the end, and some of the kids can actually ride from the top of the street on their sleds down this snowbank, and then they just rip down the hill because it's a big sheet of ice. And so when they saw the big truck coming, they were worried because <laughs> they'd seen cars slipping and sliding up the hill all week. And sure enough, as the garbage truck pulls up the hill, you just see it starting to, you know, kind of careen side to side, and there is cars on both sides of the street, right? It is just this horrifying thought. And what's even worse is normally there's a turnaround at the top of the street, but it is a giant snowbank. There is nowhere for this truck to go. And so the kids are sort of just sitting there watching in horror. All these girls have gotten silent. They're just watching as this truck starts to slide up and down the street. And it picks up, it does manage to pick up the garbage cans. And then it tries to figure out how it's going to turn around. But it can't. So it reverses down the street. And you hear the kids be like, well, what's going to happen to all the garbage on this side of the street? Like, how, how, how's it going to get that? And then as they see him back up, they, go, they start kind of booing the garbage man. <laughs> They're just like, oh, he can't get it. Oh, why don't you get out of your truck and move the garbage cans? And like the kids are sort of chirping at the, at the garbage man and, and kind of yelling at him. That is until he gets to the bottom of the street where he makes like a 78-point turn and then reverses up the hill, slipping and sliding all the way. Well, suddenly... 
the kids were amazed. This guy went from zero to hero in one reverse up an icy hill. The kids start chanting and cheering for the garbage man. We have this whole herd of kids standing there as he goes by, be like, yeah, go, 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 go get that garbage can. In a moment, the kids were able to go from impossible to the possible. They were able to look at someone as someone that could not accomplish a task and see them as this great person. The kids were filled with such joy, and suddenly these kids, who had long since moved away from wanting to be garbage men, were able to say, I want to be a garbage worker one day. Contrast that to me and the dad from across the street. As we sat and watched, at first we went, what an idiot. He's going to hit one of those cars. I was kind of hoping he'd hit one of our cars so that we could write it off and get a new one. But uh, we're sitting and we're watching him and what, what's this guy going to do? Like what, what on earth is he doing? And then, you know, he goes up and, and, and Rob, who's my neighbor and I are sitting there and we're like, well, I would do that better. I could solve this faster, you know? And we're, we're sitting there and we're like, well, I would just get out and I grab the cans and move them to that side of the street and be done in like five minutes. What's this guy doing? Blah, 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 blah. Now he goes and he turns around and comes back up the street and we're like, oh, this is a dumb way to do it. He's just going to make ice on the hill. What's he doing? And then he pulls away. Contrast those two attitudes towards something that is happening before you. I hope we can see how we might do that with God in our everyday life. There comes a place in most of our lives where we start to see the difficulties and see them as being impossible or improbable to overcome. And we see that as fine. We come to these places where we have learned to get by out of our own strength and by our own ingenuity and we say to ourselves, that's all I need to get on by. And what happens as we do that, whether or not we're a follower of Jesus, is we come to this place where we look at God and we begin to box him in. And that changes drastically how we respond to God. The response of Rob and I was, good, that guy did his job. We don't have to wait till next week. The response of the children was, that guy's a hero. Look at what he can do. I don't know what you face in your life right now as you consider who God is. I don't know if you look at the situations that you're going through and you see them as overwhelmingly difficult or improbable to be able to work through. I don't know if you have a set of stresses that just keep hanging on you that make you say, I guess I just have to live this way. I don't know what it is for you. But the question is, how will you respond to it? Jesus says you can go and you can be ambivalent like John. You can choose to look at the problems and the difficulties and try to face them on your own like the people of the great city of Capernaum. Or you can be like a little child and come to me and then I will give you rest. In verses 28 to 30, Jesus said this. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and then you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now there's two ways that we can misunderstand this. The first is to think of it as a classic Christian cheesy cliche. We say, yeah, that's a nice thing to say, but what is life really like? The other is to take it too far and to to say, well, clearly I'm not connected to God because my life is difficult. And so I haven't gone far enough or God hasn't met me close enough and this is where I stand. Neither of those two are true. We need to embrace the fullness of what Jesus says as he comes into these communities. And the person who uh, has summed this up perhaps the best is uh, a pastor named Doug Webster. Doug Webster wrote this. He says, he, that is Jesus' easy yoke, is neither cheap nor convenient. The surprising promise of the easy yoke was meant to free us from our self-serving, melodious, performance-based religion. It is easy in that it frees us from the burden of self-centeredness. It liberates us from the load of self-righteousness. And it frees us to live in the way that God intended us to live. The easy yoke sounds like an oxymoron. Plowing a field or pulling a load is difficult work. And nowhere does Jesus promise soft ground for tilling or level paths for bearing the load. What he does promise, though, is a relationship with himself. The demands are great, but the relationship with Jesus makes the burden light. This is the promise that God gives us, is that life will not be difficult. We all know this. We can turn this into a cliche, a, a cliche oh, life is going to be so perfect. You know, and, we t- and sometimes people try to win people to faith with that, and it's just such a lie. Jesus himself never said that life would be easy. He didn't say, if you come to me, if you receive me and everything I'm going to teach you, life is going to be peachy keen and everything's going to be perfect. No, he says it's going to be a lot of work and it's going to be hard going. So he uses this image of a yoke that ties two cattle together for plowing a field. He doesn't say things are going to be easy and there's not going to be any rocks that you get hung up on along the way. It's not going to be all level and perfect and, and smooth soil. But what he does say is that if we receive him, we get to do it with him. If you're in a place today where you're living ambivalent towards Jesus, Jesus says you have chosen a side. You have chosen a side towards difficulty and death, towards loneliness and isolation. And you are there because of the rebellion you have done against the God who loves and created you. You can reject him, he says. He says, and in doing so, you can box life in whatever self-centered and self-serving way that you want. And that might carry you through to a point, but know this, when you think you're going to go up into eternity, you're going to go down into Hades, he says, to the city of Capernaum. Or, he says, You can face the difficult road that lies before you, the hard work that he calls you to, and you can do that with him and for him, knowing that one day things won't end in a certain way of difficulty and stress, but in a place of peace and hope and life 
with the God who has walked alongside of you. How will you choose to respond to Jesus today, this week, this month, or this year?